have the opportunity to, to preach for us today. And I'm going to be going through the book of Philippians. Um, I know when Pastor Joe returns with us, Lord willing, next week, I think he plans, I do know he plans on going through or preaching through some of the Psalms, through the Psalter. Not all of them, but some of them. So the overall plan with Philippians, um, I don't know, it might take us five years to get through Philippians. And the way that I mean by that is, I think periodically, as I have the opportunity and privilege to preach, we'll keep picking away at Philippians. So today... We're going to look through Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So here now the reading of God's holy word found uh, in Psalm 100, the Old Testament reading. It says, Make a joyful no noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know, what the Lord he, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So please now turn your attention to the New Testament reading and sermon passage for today. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and we'll examine this, this morning verses 1 through 6. So here now... Uh, Philippians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ, Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as we consider Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, it is important to have an understanding and context upon which Paul penned this letter. It is most likely that Paul had written this letter while in prison, probably in Rome around the year 60 A.D., what is recorded in Acts 28 is most likely the account and circumstances in which Paul write, is writing this letter. This is what Paul wrote in part of Acts 28, so it gives us an account here. Three days from Acts 28, three days you, later he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem. And handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted, me to, wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this uh, claim, with this, with this chain, excuse me. To give us some background, uh, Peter O'Brien, in his commentary to the epistles to the Philippians, provides a nice overview on the purpose of Paul's letter and develops four themes. So these four themes first consider. So the first one, we, we find Paul sending back Ephroditus, an, an ambassador from the church of Philippi. And this provides an opportunity to send this letter to the Philippians. Paul expresses his gratitude to his friends for their generosity as evidence in the recent gift Paphroditus had brought. 
Paul takes special attention that this gift is another example of the generous spirit that has characterized their lives from the beginning of their commitment to the gospel and further evidence of their common cause with him in his affliction. At the same time, Paul explains why he took the decision to send back um, Epaphroditus so promptly. So Epaphroditus had fallen ill and nearly died in fulfillment of his ministry to Paul. Paul believed that the generation would rejoice when they saw Epaphroditus and Paul's own sorrow would be lessened knowing that he was home and in good health. Their messenger was another godly example for them. He had risked his life for the sake of the work of Christ. Second, Paul's Christian, uh, second, Paul's Christian friends at Philippi had been deeply concerned about his welfare, knowing that he was in prison waiting trial. Contrary to what they might have expected, his imprisonment and the events surrounding it had served to advance the gospel to both within the Christian community of the capital and outside of it. Not all of those who had been emboldened to proclaim the gospel did so from the highest of motives. Nevertheless, the significant thing for Paul was that Christ was being preached, and in this he rejoiced. Regarding the future, Paul is not sure whether he will be acquitted by Caesar's tribunal and discharged from prison or not. He is able to rejoice over his own salvation, for he knows that he was acquitted by God at the heavenly tribunal. His pastoral concern for his readers shine through as he considers their needs. Although he longs to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, to remain here on earth and minister to them and other believers, believers is more necessary. Paul's future relationship with the Philippians are important. Because of his imprisonment, he cannot visit them at the present. However, he ex expects to send Timothy to them soon. Not immediately, but when he has a clear view of his own affairs. He also hopes to visit them before long and plans accordingly. While they'll be glad to have news of him, he is anxious to learn how they are faring and will be encouraged when he hears about them. So three, regarding Paul's opponents and the false teachers at Philippi, it is clear that one of the apostles' major purposes in writing his letter was to warn his dear friends of the dangers posed by Jewish Christian missionaries from outside the congregation who by their Judaizing propaganda, sought to pervert the gospel of grace and to win them over. Their teaching was harmful, their example ungodly, and their final destination, eternal ruin and separation from the presence of the Lord. The apostles' words in chapter 3 regarding their opponents are some of the harshest and strongest found in any of his letters. Fourth, closely related to the apostles' concern that his readers be made aware of dangers from opponents of the gospel is a twofold summoned to stand fast and be united. Paul's relations with the church at Philippi were warm and affectionate. Here was a congregation that was supported, supported him in the cause of the gospel from the beginning. He was able to look back in gratitude and know that God had begun his work in the lives of these converts. Many readers of Paul's letters later letters have concluded that his church was a model congregation with few problems. And the strong emphasis in the letter on the theme of rejoicing serves to confirm this impression. But for all its strengths, the church had internal rivalries and disputes. Paul calls them to live together as citizens worthy of the gospel. And this involves an exhortation to stand fast, persevere, and be united. 
Paul's letter places great weight on the need to stand fast and persevere. The readers have been facing adversity and were tempted to abandon their struggle. Perhaps, too, they had lost their sense of joy. So they are to stand firm in one spirit, contending together for their faith of the gospel in the context of opposition from enemies who seek to intimidate them. They are engaged in the same conflict for the gospel as Paul, and this involves suffering on behalf of Christ. Elsewhere, they are exhorted to hold fast the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. This is part of their serious responsibility of working out their own salvation with godly fear. In regards to internal rivalries, those that troubled by internal rivalries, they are to stand firm in one spirit for the cause of the gospel. Withstanding the common enemy, the emphasis on unity is even more pronounced in the beginning of chapter 2, where on the basis of supernatural objective realities that occurred in their lives, they are urged to be one in aim and disposition, have the same love, and be united in spirit. Against their natural tendency to self-assertiveness that are called upon to put the interests of others before their own and to be marked by a spirit of selflessness and humility. Paul then appeals to the lordly example of Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing, but was exalted to the highest place by the Father. He is the pattern to which the Philippians are to conform. The epistle, while possessing the characteristics of a personal letter, has been carefully constructed. It may be well have been organized and written according to the principles of Greco-Roman rhetoric. The apostle appears to have a number of purposes in mind as he wrote it, namely to express his gratitude to the Philippian friends for their generosity, to explain why he decided to send Paphroditus back so quickly, to inform his readers of his present circumstance and how his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, to indicate his possible future plans, including the visit of Timothy and his hopes of visiting them himself, to warn the Philippians of the dangers posed by the Judaizing opponents from outside the congregation, and especially to urge his Christian friends to stand firm for the gospel and to be united in Christian love. So through this sermon series, we will be approaching Paul's letters to the Philippians through the manner in which he organized his letter. So here's how he organized it. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which is part of what we're going to examine today, Paul introduces the letter with a typical salutation and embraces the church with thanksgiving and joyful intercession. So chapter 1, 9 through 11, Paul instructs the church on the importance and priority of the gospel of Christ on his life and mission. We look in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verses 18. The letter instructs the Philippians on the, conduct, on the conduct that is worthy of the gospel and provides exhortation and godly examples for the community to follow after. Paul follows up in chapter uh, 2, 19 through 30 with news about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how they are two Christ-like examples worthy to follow after. Chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 21, a warning is given against Judaizers and exhortation, and again, exhortation to follow Paul's example and teaching. Paul concludes his letter in chapter 4 to the Philippians with a final exhortation, thanksgiving for the gift from the Philippians and a final greetings. Now, as we examine the sermon text for today, 
Please draw your eyes back to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So we'll look at first verses 1 through 2 in chapter 1. And here we find Paul's greetings or, or salutations. And it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul greets the Philippian church in a similar manner in which he starts many of his other letters by mentioning the author, the recipient, and the greetings of some sort. And I think, church, it's important that whenever we come across something of common or familiarity as a greeting, a salutation, we can often grow complacent and miss out the significance of the words and knowledge by being communicated in the greetings that Paul chose to start his letter with. Paul was intentional with how he introduced his letter. And the phrase that I want to draw attention to in this greeting is that phrase, all the saints in Christ. I believe that Paul chose to use this positional term and phrase to introduce his letter as he is, as he is reminding the, the reader of their position in and relationship to the Christ while undergoing difficult circumstance. While Paul is wrongfully imprisoned, there is great power and comfort for him and others knowing that he is in Christ. As Epaphroditus struggles with and perseveres through a deadly illness, there is power and comfort knowing that he is in Christ. And as the church of Philippi deals with the trials and tribulations, there is great power and comfort knowing that they are in Christ. And brothers and sisters, we too can have great power and comfort in our day and age, knowing that we are in Christ. So the question is, what does it mean when Paul states to all the saints uh, that are in Christ, that are in Jesus Christ? And what do I mean that there is great power and comfort for those in Christ Jesus? So it's a question we have to answer. It's a question you have to answer, a question we have to know. In order for us to be in Christ, we have to be in a relationship with Him. We have to be accepted by Him. We have to be in good standing with the Heavenly Father. We have to hear and believe upon the gospel message. So children, hear this message and respond. Those who have not heard and received the true gospel of Christ, listen to the gospel message and respond. Those who are already in Christ, which is most of you, let your hearts be filled with joy as you hear the good news of Christ. In order for us to be in Christ, we must recognize that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. And as a result, the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we are dead spiritually. We are enemies of God, destined for eternal damnation, and are not in Christ. But God in His mercy and grace has provided a free gift to His people that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has chosen out of His grace and mercy to send the Son of God and take away the sins of His people by dying on the cross and living a perfect life and imputing His righteousness to each and every one of His people. So how do you receive that gift of God and find yourself in Christ? Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. 
It is the act of God and God alone, and a God alone that has decided to and bring about salvation for his people. So how do you find yourself in Christ? You confess, repent, and believe upon Jesus Christ and the work of salvation that he has done for you. For those that place their faith in Christ are no longer enemies of God, but accepted as children of God and are securely found in Christ. Paul in Romans 5 states, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because, God, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the, time, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, per, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we have now been, now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there is great power and comfort for those that are in Christ, regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in this life, because they are accepted by the true and living God. Furthermore, there is great power and comfort for those who are in Christ because of the great benefit we find in Christ alone. Children, this should sound familiar. Church, this should sound familiar. Catechism question 39 teaches us, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. Another way to phrase this, what are the benefits in this life that accompany or flow from being in Christ? The answer is this. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification, or being in Christ, are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Brothers and sisters, there is great power and comfort in this life, regardless of the situation, for those that are found to be in Christ. Our catechism teaches us that there is great power and comfort for those that are in Christ that are facing death at the hands of another or natural ailments. Question 40 from our catechism asks this, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer, the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in the graves till the resurrection. And most supremely there is great power excuse me, and most supremely there is great power and comfort for those in Christ at the final judgment. 
Question 41 asks, what benefit do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in enjoyment of God to all eternity. So Paul's short phrase to all the saints in Christ Jesus is so important to believers as it reminds us of our position and dependence upon Christ and enables enables us to have power and comfort to endure whatever may come our way in this life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm to confirm your calling and election in the Lord. So please now look with me at verses 3 through 6 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says here, starting in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. While we are only examining verses 1 through 6 today, verses 3 through 11 can be referred to as Paul's Thanksgiving paragraph. It provides insight into the ongoing relationship and partnership between Paul and the church at Philippi. Paul starts this paragraph by saying, I thank my God. This principal clause dominates or leads what he has to say in verses 4 through 11. For Paul, the gratitude, thanksgiving, praise to God is the utmost importance to him in his relationship with the Philippians. Throughout Paul's letters, all his le- many of his letters, you find Paul expressing his gratitude through thanksgiving. As thanksgiving increases, God is glorified. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says this, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Peter O'Brien states this, that it is thus clear that that the Pauline thanksgiving approximates what is normally understood as praise. So when we read the word thanksgiving of Paul, it's praise that we have in view. Certainly the, the English word thanksgiving is rather more limited in its range of meaning since it normally denotes the expression of gratitude for personal benefits received and is to that extent rather man-centered. But this sort of notion does not fit Paul's language for as here he regularly gives thanks for grace in the lives of others by God, particularly those within the church of the Gentile mission. We know that the, uh, the Philippians provided Paul with support of various kinds, but Paul's thanksgiving is not directed to them, but to God, for what God has done through them. Paul states, I thank my God. In verse 3, this is not a reverence to some vague or casual reference to any God of someone's choosing, but rather the true and living God. This is a common phrase found in Paul's other letters, such as Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philemon, and of course here in Philippians. So as we've been learning in our Sunday school class, the Psalter is a great source on how to pray, and it's likely that Paul is drawing from them, as you hear many of Psalms use a similar phrase. For example, Psalm 3-7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you sake my, all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth in the wicked. Psalm 5.2, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
Brothers and sisters, we must follow after Paul's example and be quick to give God thanksgiving and praise frequently for the many blessings in our lives and the work He is doing in the church. So look back at verse 4. Verse 4 states, He remembers them. So verse 4 states, He remembers them. Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul provides us with, this, with information on the frequency in which he gives, to, uh, gives thanks to God for them. Paul uses the word always to describe how often he gives, gives thanks. I don't think this is to be understood as an unceasing prayer or a prayer that never stops, but rather that he did not forget them, he did not forget the Philippians, in his regular time of prayer. Paul takes great joy and pleasure in giving thanks to God for them. And why is that? How is it that Paul can find joy in giving thanks? Praising God for the believers in Philippi. Where does Paul get this joy that for, for the Philippians? How does he get this joy in giving thanks for the Philippians? Look at verse 4 through 6. Making my prayer with joy, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began, began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul finds joy because of the work that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has already done in their lives. Paul correctly understands the doctrine of good works. He understands that the lives lived by the Philippians testify to the faith and trust they have in Christ. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, summarizes doctrine of good works in chapter 16, paragraph 2 as, These good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good, work, through good works, believers express their thanksgiving, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the, do- have the outcome eternal life. Therefore, Paul can have joy in his prayers for the Philippians because their good works testify to the faith and trust that they have in Christ Jesus. Their good works show that they are in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 tells us, looking at verse 6, tells us that Paul is also convinced that his joy will remain because the work that God has started in them will be brought to fruition in the future. So Paul has joy in the present and he has joy in the future for the Philippians because of this. And why is this? Is because Paul has in view the doctrine called, commonly called the perseverance of the saints. Paul is able to express great joy over the Philippians, both in the present and the future, because he has in view the correct and proper doctrine of Scripture. He understands Scripture. Scripture is guiding. Scripture has an impact on Paul and his life. The London Baptist Confession of Faith Summarizing that—that's what is good about our confession. It's a summary, the summarizing of these doctrines. Chapter seventeen summarizes the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints as those God has accepted in the beloved. So those that are in Christ 
are effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, it still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the grace of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and the rock and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them from a time through their unbelief and temptations of Satan, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession, for they are engraved on the palms of His hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity." Paragraph 3 of chapter 17 states this, Although they may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time due to the temptation of Satan and the world, the strength of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their preservation, in, so, in, in so doing, they incur God's displeasure and grief His Holy Spirit. Their grace and comforts become impaired. Their hearts are hardened and their conscience wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring uh, temporary judgment on themselves. Nevertheless, they will renew the repentance and be persevered through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. As we heard in last week's sermon, our doctrine has tremendous impact on how we live and manage our lives today. Paul's view on good works and perseverance of the saints has led him to great joy. His correct understanding of doctrine has manifested into joy in his life for the Philippians. Because he has led him to great joy and praise for our Heavenly Father. Having correct and proper doctrine provides a pathway and opportunity to experience joy in all types of situations life brings about. Our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Baptist Catechism that we just talked about with our children, Sunday School, and of course the preaching and teaching of God's Word each Lord's Day are means by which we are able to understand and build up correct doctrine within our lives and the lives of our children. These are the means of grace by which God has given us to build up correct doctrine, to guide, to lead our life, to build a foundation upon so we can find joy in this life. So there are three points of application that I would like to present to you from this teaching. First, I employ you to be found in Christ. And if you are in Christ, take great joy that you are in Him forever. Repent, turn from your sins, and seek the grace and mercy of God the Father through Christ Jesus. Again, I'm quoting this a lot, but I think it's significant. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 15, tells us that repentance must continue throughout our lives. We're being a people of repentance throughout our lives, not just once. Because of the body of death and its activities... So it is everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. If we are in Christ, we must continually examine our lives and be quick to repent or turn from our sins. This is one of the reasons the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in a few, a weekly observance of the Sabbath is critical. 
They are a means of grace by which God helps guide and direct His people in a life of repentance. Furthermore, furthermore, paragraph 5 of chapter 15 of the Confession tells us God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to uh, preserve believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that is undeserving damnation, yet there is no sin so great that will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Brothers and sisters, be found in Christ. Be marked with a life of repentance. True joy will come from a life of repentance because we can be assured we are children of God. The second point of application is that if we are found in Christ, we should be living a life of thanksgiving praise to God. Because of our fallen condition and utter dependence upon God for our salvation and daily sustenance, we must be proactive in giving thanksgiving to God for all things. I think there are three reasons why, well, there's probably more, but I think there's three reasons that I'm going to mention here why we don't actively respond with thanksgiving and praise to the many blessings and provisions we find in our life. First, our own arrogance and pride. It is very easy to look around and say, look at what I've created, made or provided. Look at the work of my own hands and in my intellect. Look what, look what they've done. Look what they've created. Look what they've built and provided. While it may be true that you have been wise and a good steward of the resources you've been provided with, we must not forget that they are provided to you from our Heavenly Father. This is why Jesus has, brought, has taught his disciples to, prayer, to pray a prayer of dependence, which is give us this day our daily bread. We are to depend upon him and give thanks to God for his provision, no matter the form and nature in which it has been provided to us. Second, I think we neglect to give thanks to God for the things he has provided because we think we are entitled to certain things. We think we're entitled to certain ways of life or the luxuries that appear to be the status quo of society. When we find ourselves in difficult situations that are not pleasant, we can easily feel entitled that we deserve something better. The spirit of entitlement manifests itself in being discontent through jealousy, envy, bitterness, and anger. Third, I think it is possible for people when blessed by the Lord to actually respond with guilt instead of thanksgiving. The response of guilt comes through when one may feel unworthy or undeserving of such blessings from the Lord. It is correct and proper to have the understanding that we are unworthy or not deserving of such blessings based on our own merit, but it is wrong to allow that to fully manifest itself as guilt and feeling the need to apologize for the blessings of the Lord. I think we see this playing out in our society. The Lord has blessed this nation in many ways. As a culture and as a whole, we have denied the existence of God. And in doing so, we have no place to give proper thanksgiving. And now we, start, we see it turning into the form of guilt for why we have what we have. It should be rather apparent that the blessings bestowed upon us have a response of thanksgiving praise to our Heavenly Father. Here further some exhortation from the Apostle Paul on thanksgiving and uh, being content. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not, get, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing another, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians, which we'll eventually find out in chapter 4, it says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, plenty, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So the third and final point, as Paul is our example, third and final point of application, as Paul is our example, we should be people who pray for one another. When the Apostle Paul prayed, he always mentioned the Philippians and gave praise to God for them. As we read the testimonies of new and old members of Emmaus, we should give thanks to God. Give praise and thanks to God for what He has done in the lives of the people of Emmaus in the past. And we too can take joy in what God will complete in the people of Emmaus in the future. As we fellowship and interact with one another before, between, and after the services and throughout the week, we learn about each other's past and we are currently going and what we're currently going through the situations we're in now things are shared that can be lifted up uh, in prayer as request to God thanksgiving and praise so we need to be intentional with our fellowship to learn to interact to understand one another so we can praise God alongside with one another and we can pray and bring these requests to God so as you observe the sabbath both publicly and privately be intentional with your interactions with one another in order to increase the opportunities to give thanksgiving and praise to God. In our afternoon service, it is our custom to hold congregational prayer that follow the Lord's prayer. We, we, we model our, our corporate prayer after the Lord's prayer. We pray along these, these categories. And the Lord's prayer is this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, is, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So think about that, church. In each of these six petitions, there is guidance and ample opportunity to give God thanks and praise He rightly deserves. So each of those petitions that we are called to bring before God the Father, we can bring those requests, we could bring those petitions, but we can also accompany them with praise and thanksgiving as well, and we should rightfully so. So in conclusion, therefore, brothers and sisters, be found in Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. Be people marked with praise and thanksgiving to God in all things. And strive to lift one another up in prayer and take joy in what God has done and will continue to do in and through his people. Go with me before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for um, the gift of the catechism. We thank you for the work of our confession that we can understand in, in summary form of your doctrines. Lord, help us to be a people who are found in you. Lord, help us to be a people that repent frequently and specifically. 
Lord, let you be praised and glorified in that. Lord, help us to be a people who give you thanksgiving and praise in all things, all circumstance. Lord, help us to increase in our fellowship. Help us to grow in our love for one another. And in all things, Lord, we ask that you be glorified and praised. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.